0: Okay, we will now continue with the with the study. <laughs> okay, we continue with the study of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. and so far we have completed the first three foundations of mindfulness that is the contemplation of the body the contemplation of feeling and last time we did the contemplation of mind or consciousness now we come to the fourth and final foundation of mindfulness, which is called in Pali, Dhammanupassana, the contemplation of Dhammas. And I'll leave that word untranslated for now, in order first, then I'll explain why. Okay the word dhamma is you could say it's the most important word in Buddhism and it's a word that has several different meanings or different connotations First in in the singular It means the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha's teaching is called the Dhamma. Then sometimes the word Dhamma means the principle of righteousness or virtue or goodness. Then as a plural The word dhamma has also several meanings. Sometimes it means simply qualities. Like a person might be endowed with certain dhammas, those are certain personal qualities. He might have, say, faith, virtue, learning, wisdom those are all considered Dhammas, or he might be skeptical, um, lazy, selfish, greedy, and so on. Those are also Dhammas. So any kind of personal qualities Then also the word Dhamma has a more restricted meaning in which it indicates the specific objects of mind or thought as opposed to the objects of the other five senses. Like we say that the eye sees forms, or through the eye we see forms, through the ear we hear sounds, through the nose we smell sense, through the tongue we experience tastes, through the body we experience touch sensations, then through the mind the specific object of the mind consciousness is called dhammas. Sometimes this term is then translated as mental objects. And I think that's the intention here in rendering Dhammas as mental objects. And then the word Dhamma has the widest sense in which it refers to all phenomena in general. like Everything that exists is called a Dhamma and in different passages the word Dhamma is used in one or another of these senses there are even more senses but I don't have to bring them in here (laughs) Now, I have not really seen any explanation in a commentary <laughs> why the, any explanation, any commentary, what exactly is the meaning of Dhamma in Dhamma Upasana. And most translators render it mind objects or mental objects. I think they are, they have in mind the sense of the object of mind consciousness, as opposed to the objects of the other types of consciousness. I'm not really sure that's correct. The way I would understand it, interpret it, that what is intended as the object of contemplation here are Dhammas as all phenomena in general in the most general sense. However, these phenomena are here organized into particular groups, particular sets. which are determined by the nature and aim of the Dhamma, as the Buddha's teaching. So this is my personal interpretation, that Dhammanupassana means the contemplation of phenomena, all phenomena, structured in such a way that they will bring insight into the fundamental principles of the Buddha's teaching. So that's why I think, well that's the meaning that I think Dhamma bears in this context. And for that reason, I would prefer not to translate it, but to leave it in the original Pali. And now to show you what is involved in Dhamman Upasana, we have here five particular uh, groupings of phenomena. Okay, so we have these five groupings, or sets, of Dhammas which are to be contemplated in the practice of Dhamma-nupasana. And it seems that there is a certain sequence here, or a progression, which I think is deliberately intended by the the Buddha. One begins with the contemplation of those things which are called the five hindrances. So these are the things, the obstructions that one faces at the outset. I mean, not only at the outset, but, of course, they're especially prominent at the beginning. And these are states which have to be overcome in order to progress towards wisdom. Then the next two groupings are the five aggregates which make up the individual existence, and the six internal and external sense bases. It's the eye and forms, ear and sounds, and so on. Okay, so you can say that once the mind gets cleared of the hindrances, then one is able to enter with deeper concentration and steadiness of mind on the examination of the different elements that make up one's individual existence. Though there's (laughs) something of a throwback to the defilements under number three, where the Buddha says that one contemplates the internal and external sense spaces and also the fetters that arise through them. Okay, but anyway, we'll take it that generally in this stage of two and three, one is contemplating these different elements of the person, of the individual. Then, as contemplation of these actualities gets strong and clear, then the seven Bojangas arise, These seven factors of enlightenment. So these are the seven mental factors that are progressing with a great deal of strength and power towards realization. And then with the last set, number five, the Four Noble Truths, then there takes place the penetration or the realization of the heart and core of the Buddha's teaching, which is the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so in this way, the practice of Dhammanupassana begins from the obstructions that one finds normally at the beginning and it goes step by step to the realization of the Four Noble Truths. Though also, I should say that one shouldn't take this as a very hard and fast distinction Of stages because even as one overcomes the five hindrances still sometimes even when one is contemplating say the five aggregates or even when the seven factors of enlightenment have arisen sometimes from time to time the five hindrances will arise again (laughs) but just in a general way I think this shows the kind of progress in development of the practice. Okay. If there are any questions on this sort of general introduction to Dhamma and Upasana, then I'll take them at this point. And I have to say also that I have some spies <laughs> working and I'm told that sometimes when I ask if there are any questions, People don't ask questions. But then when we go downstairs before leaving, then I hear a constant kind of rumbling, bumble, 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 bumble. Then I ask, what is all the bumble, bumble, bumble about? And I say, oh, people had many questions, but they were too ashamed to ask them. <laughs> so don't be ashamed or afraid. I only bark but I don't bite. Yeah. the of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. we have last Yeah. 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 in like Okay, that's a good question, but I'm going to come to that when I get into the I'm going to deal with each of these in detail. Then I already had that on the agenda for dealing with the uh when explaining the five hindrances. I just anything on the very general the meaning of Dhamma and this general layout of the subjects here. Maybe it's maybe it's too early to ask for questions. Maybe I'll just go directly into the explanation. Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, then I'll come now into discussion of the five hindrances. Okay, last week I spoke of this distinction which is made in Buddhism between a distinction which is made in conscious experience between the state of mind, or state of consciousness itself, and the mental factors. All conscious experience consists of a conjunction, or say a constellation of citta, which is the basic state of consciousness, and its retinue It's accompaniment of mental factors. So citta or mind or consciousness never arises alone, but it also arises with a bundle of mental factors. They say it's just like a king who, when he goes traveling, he never travels alone, but always he goes traveling with A whole group of, you know, dukes and um, duchesses and bodyguards and whatever, many, many members of his retinue. So citta, or the state of mind or consciousness, has the basic nature or function of knowing an object, experiencing an object, and in that Act of experiencing an object, all of these cetasikas, these mental factors, perform more specific tasks like feeling, which is a cetasika, experiences the, say the pleasurable or unpleasurable nature of the object. Perception notices the qualities and characteristics of the object. Volition, Chaitana, initiates an action in respect to the object. Attention turns the mind to the object. Um, Then there are various wholesome Chaitasikas, which are good qualities of, of the mind and there are various unwholesome mental factors which are the bad qualities of the mind. Okay, that is the distinction between citta and shaitasikas. And I also explained last week that since citta is just awareness or knowing of an object, when we want to identify the citta, we always have to do so in terms of the mental factors the Chaitasikas. Now these five hindrances are five Chaitasikas, five mental factors. And of the two types of mental factors that I explained last week, unwholesome ones and wholesome ones, what kind of mental factors of these... They're the unwholesome kind. Okay, so when one is doing contemplation of mind, the citta then the basic purpose is to become aware, to know what kind of state of mind has arisen but when one tries to identify the state of mind, one is doing so in terms of the Chaitasikas. Because it's the Chaitasikas that differentiate the mind. So therefore we have in the contemplation of consciousness, we have the mind with lust, mind without lust, mind with hate, mind without hate, and so on. So in the contemplation of consciousness you say the primary object is citta or consciousness. But to distinguish what kind of consciousness it is one has to distinguish in terms of the chaitasikas. In the contemplation of dhammas Then one is taking the Chaitasikas, in the contemplation of the five hindrances, one is taking the Chaitasikas out and focusing upon these particular set of unwholesome Chaitasikas called the five hindrances. And, okay, I will read then the passage now and then I will give the explanations and the practical explanations in regard to each. Okay, and how, monks, does a monk live contemplating mental objects and mental mental objects? Dhammesu dham Anupasi Biharati Here, a monk lives contemplating mental objects and the mental objects of the five hindrances. And how does a monk live contemplating mental objects and the mental objects of the five hindrances? Herein, when sense desire is present, a monk knows there is sense desire in me or when sense-desire is not present, he knows there is no sense-desire in me. He knows how the arising of the non-arisen sense-desire comes to be. He knows how the abandoning of the arisen sense desire comes to be. And he knows how the non arising in the future of the abandoned sense desire comes to be. Then the same pattern is repeated for each of the other four hindrances. When anger or ill will is present, and so on. When sloth and torpor are present, and so on. When agitation and scruples, or I have restlessness and worry, are present. And when doubt is present, the same thing, same structure. Okay, in actual practical terms (laughs) it seems that there isn't so much of a difference between (laughs) letting the cat out of the bag. There is not so much of an actual practical difference between if there's a cheetah with lust, considering that as a cheetah with lust, or else considering this as a case where the hindrance of sense-desire has arisen. Or in the case when there is a citta consciousness with hatred. um, And the case when ill will has arisen and then contemplating that as the hindrance of ill will. The actual situation is the same. But just the way one views that situation involves a slight difference in emphasis in the chitana upasana one is trying to see this as an instance of a particular state of mind that that has arisen and one is distinguishing what kinds of states of mind states of con- what kind of states of consciousness arise then one might be seeing different states of consciousness arise one after another. But the focus point is the consciousness. One can view that same situation from a different angle. Then one is looking to see what kind of mental factors arise. And then when some obstructive mental factor comes up, then one will try to pinpoint that and bring it in relationship to the five hindrances which one or another but also the contemplation of the hindrances involves a certain additional passage that I will come to a little bit later which is not found under the contemplation of consciousness okay now in the Buddha's exposition or explanation of the contemplation of the five hindrances. Okay, what is done when a particular hindrance has arisen is that the meditator notices it, becomes aware that such a hindrance has arisen in the mind again he might be using as the primary object of contemplation some object like in and out breathing the rise and fall of the abdomen a physical object but then there will come times when the mind when thoughts of sensual pleasure arise in the mind and desire and attachment for sensual pleasure arise then one will contemplate or focus on that mental factor and become aware that there is sense desire in me. That sense desire has arisen. Or just the mental note sense desire, sense desire. Then one will also make the note or one can make the note that this sense desire is one of the five hindrances one knows that it's a hindrance then as one notes the sense desire then that sense desire will go away it fades out and then one becomes aware that there is no sense desire in me Or it might just happen, for example, that the mind might be clear for a long period of sense-desire, then also one just notes that there is no sense-desire has arisen. And also, the very act of becoming aware of sense-desire, applying the mindfulness to that sense-desire, makes the sense-desire fade away. As I explained last week in regard to the cheetahs, the chileses, the defilements, are like thieves that work best in the dark or that work best in a shop where there's no security guard. (laughs) When the security guard is keeping very careful watch on the shop, then the thief just goes in and carries on like a regular customer. (laughs) He's not able to steal anything. He'll look in the corners, he'll see that there are mirrors in the four corners and that there's a guard standing at the door with tough expression on his face. and So he won't try to steal anything. And so when mindfulness is being applied to the mind, then the hindrance goes away and also what's very interesting and important to note here is that this system of the Satipatthana meditation is able to take all of these mental states which are normally obstructions and obstacles and turn them into objects or foundations of meditation So it's a very, very comprehensive method in that it turns even the negative and obstructive states into launching pads for the progress of the practice. And so when one becomes mindful that one of these five hindrances has arisen, then that very act of mindfulness to the hindrance is the first of the seven foundations of, or the seven factors of enlightenment. So one is laying the foundation for that whole sequence that culminates in enlightenment. Okay, so the basic practice in the contemplation of the mental objects is to note when one of the hindrances has arisen, one notes that it is present, that it has exists, and when it fades away or when it's absent, then one notes that it's absent. But then the Buddha adds another passage just (coughs) three lines which so which show that one is to understand the causal structure underlying that mental hindrance he knows how the arising of the non arisen sense desire comes to be that is he knows what kind of causes bring sense-desire into existence, what things stimulate the arising of sense-desire. He knows how the abandoning of the arisen sense-desire comes to be. That is, he knows what kind of factors, what kind of methods... Are useful in overcoming sense desire. And then he knows how the final elimination of that sense desire takes place so that it doesn't arise anymore in the future. Then the explanations for these are also given elsewhere in the suttas by the Buddha. He explains the causes for the arising and the abandoning for each of the five hindrances. In the case of sensual desire the Buddha says that the main cause for its arising is what he calls unwise attention to the pleasurable or the beautiful aspect of things. Unwise attention is what we call ayoni so manasikara. the mind is always attending to its objects. And there are two different ways in which it can attend to things. It can attend to things wisely, carefully, in a way that is guided by the Dhamma. And it can attend to things unwisely, carelessly, in a superficial way. And generally, the phenomena of the senses present pleasant or beautiful appearances so that the eye is always looking for beautiful forms, the sound for lovely, the ear for lovely sounds, and so on. So each of these senses is looking for something which is enjoyable and beautiful. And when it finds it, then the sense becomes riveted upon that object and through its giving unwise attention to that beautiful and charming appearance of things, then sense desire arises. Then the Buddha says that the Method or cause for the abandoning of the arisen sense desire lies in giving wise attention to the object. That's called yoniso manasikara. That's attention which uncovers, we can say, which uncovers the unpleasurable. <laughs> or disagreeable or say repugnant aspect of the objects which are normally hidden from us because the mind (coughs) through its own conditioning does not dwell (laughs) on the unpleasant side of things, but it's sort of driven by craving to look for and to fasten upon the beautiful aspect of things. Particularly, this is in the instruction that the Buddha gives for monks and nuns who are practicing to overcome the hindrance of sensual desire. He teaches the contemplation of the true nature of the body as explained in the Satipatthana Sutta, of mentally dissecting the body in order to see it in terms of the internal constituents, to sort of mentally cut through the skin in order to uncover the flesh, bones, sinews, the inner organs, blood, and so on. And when this is done repeatedly, then the hindrance of sensual desire, it sort of repeatedly weakened and weakened and weakened. Another method which is quite effective for overcoming desire in general, not simply sensual desire, but something which takes like all the different aspects of desire in with just one sweep is the contemplation of death. When one repeatedly contemplates on the fact that one has to die, that one never knows the exact time of death, that everybody else has to die, then all the attachment for the enjoyments of the world, also gets weakened. Okay, but the special method for abandoning the arisen sense desire within the Satipatthana method itself is noting the sense desire. One just notes that state of mind and just considers it a state of mind, a mental factor which has arisen through its conditions and by doing that one separates oneself from that sensual desire one just turns it into an object so instead of standing behind you driving you from behind so that you don't know what you're doing but it's just there pushing the mind then when one makes it into an object of attention, then it's sort of put out in front of the mind. So you can say, ah, just the mental state, arising and passing. And then he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned sense desire comes to be. That is by the attainment of the, what's called the third path, the super mundane path of non-returning, the anagami magga, one who has reached that third level of enlightenment, or penetration of the truth cuts off entirely the hindrance of sensual desire so that it can no longer arise again. And then sometimes the commentaries explain sensual desire here as including all types of craving. In that case all types of craving get entirely eliminated only by the fourth and final stage of enlightenment, the attainment of the path of arhatship. Okay, so that is the method in regard to sense desire. Maybe I should ask if there is any Question at this point specific to this section. Uh, excuse me? There is no possibility of enjoying actually some sense of Excuse me? Well, first one has to realize that the method of Satipatthana meditation here is taught as an exercise for one who is working to eliminate all of the obstructions in order to reach final deliverance. Now, this is not the Buddha's teaching for Buddhist followers in general under all conditions and circumstances I mean of course this is a matter which would be understood by those who are long accustomed to Buddhist teachings but okay so I'll go back and explain that what the Buddha teaches as the ethical guidance for lay followers is a precept which is Kamesu Michacara Veramani sikapatang, which means one observes the precept to abstain from illicit forms of sensual enjoyment. So one who does not have the precept of a monk or a nun, precept which requires celibacy, is free to have sexual relations and enjoyment, providing that those relationships do not break this precept by going into illicit forms of sexual enjoyment. That is, relationship which goes outside the marital tie and for married people. And also, I should say that the Buddha's teaching does not teach, compo- does not have any prohi- prohibition against non-marital sex relationships between people who are well, of course, unmarried, and who are independent and free to make their own decisions, who are not, you know, like youngsters responsible to parents or to a guardian. Okay, in regard to the other senses, for example, um, lay people can enjoy any of the five senses in ways which do not break any of the precepts and even I have to say that <laughs> even monks can enjoy say nice chanting, <laughs> dharma chanting or beautiful say religious images or even nice scenery. Nice scenery. Even arhats enjoy, you know, who have illuminated all sensual desire still from the terigata, terigata, we can see that they can enjoy beautiful scenery. (laughs) Um, There are verses in the terigata where some of the early monks explain their ecstasy over seeing the mountains wreathed in the clouds and the cool morning air and so on. I mean, there's no, not a prohibition of this kind of innocent enjoyment. What's being talked about in this section is that kind of enjoyment of the senses, which brings craving and attachment into place. Excuse me? Well, that's even at a more elementary level, that's in terms of morality. But a good question that you brought that up. Did <laughs> anybody else have any question in relation to that? I mean yeah, please. How does the teaching of uh, viparyasa relate to this? The viparyasa. Yes. Yeah, okay, that's quite good. Quite good. Vipalasa. In Sanskrit it's Viparyasa, Viparyasa. Um, It's explained as seeing what is impermanent as permanent, seeing what is self and fourth is seeing what is not beautiful or really repugnant as beautiful. Okay those are the four V-palaces or distorted views. When this term that I used unwise attention and is explained, it's explained in terms of the V palaces. Say, what is unwise attention? It's attending to the impermanent as permanent, the suffering, what is suffering as pleasurable, attending to what is not self as self, and attending to what is repugnant as beautiful. Okay, so This unwise attention to the repugnant as beautiful, the fourth vipalasa or distorted view is what the Buddha signals out as the special cause for the arising of sensual desire. And the, say the correction of that distorted view, putting it right, seeing what is repugnant as being really repugnant. That is the cause for the overcoming of the arisen sensual desire. But also we could say at a more subtle, at a very subtle level, all four of those distorted views will underlie I would say, will underlie all of the five hindrances. But in the case of the hindrance of sensual desire, the mind focuses at a more superficial level on this distortion of seeing the unbeautiful or the repugnant as beautiful. Is that the the, Yeah. a certain anger comes that also happens that occurs when that comes then, <laughs> then one treats it by way of the next hindrance say one is trying to overcome sensual desire and one is noting 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 and Okay, after a few notes, then it seems to go down. Then one goes back to the primary object, say breathing or rising of the abdomen. Then as soon as one goes back, then it comes up again. Then there might come, after this happens several times, and anger, frustration comes. Then one treats that as a case of the hindrance of anger or ill will. And then one <laughs> will we'll contemplate that there is anger in me, there is anger in me. Then maybe that anger will go. But are we supposed to be studying the structure of that anger? Or just dissipating yeah. that anger? In other words, uh, the primary focus of the meditation is to come back to the breathing. So yeah. yeah. The breathing, you're aware of the breathing, and yeah. you're aware of... Yeah, yeah. Doesn't one then have an opportunity to contemplate the structure and the nature of that anger and the roots of that anger? Or in just uh, coming back to concentrating on the atman and the, the base of the nose, mm-hmm. it fades away once you lose the opportunity to Yeah, one can actually do that. It really depends on the situation. But there will be times when one will... Have make a note or come to the understanding that this is one instance of a way in which the non-arisen anger arises, say that when one one is trying to get rid of a particular hindrance and that hindrance persists, then one will contemplate or you say reflect that this hindrance of ill will is arising because of impatience in getting rid of one's other hindrances so this is a contributing cause for the arising of the hindrance of this hindrance of anger is impatience in getting rid of the some of the other hindrances then one will maybe consider that to overcome that arisen anger that one has to be more patient with one's own mental obstruction, then one will see that this is one contributing factor in the abandoning of the arisen anger, being patient with it, whatever has it is. I mean, that is true. <laughs> Of course, that that is true. But one has to be aware of what particular object of attention it is that causes the hindrance of sense desire to arise in one's own case. It doesn't (laughs) matter if many, many people have become infatuated with, say, a particular movie star. <laughs> and maybe you think of this movie star and, you know, don't find her to be attractive at all. <laughs> then you don't have to be doing the contemplation of the 32 parts of the body in relation to that movie star if it doesn't arouse any sense desire in you. <laughs> Any further questions? I'm still a little unclear on on the point. As one is uh, concentrating on or or paying attention to the primary method of reading, when does one then begin to contemplate the nature and structure of tendencies and uh, the mental states and all the other things that one Mm. wants to discover, you know, workings and functioning finally getting these roots. When does one leave the primary object to begin the contemplation of these things? Yeah, I would say that it requires a certain degree of concentration to build up. Because if one starts to investigate too early, then the mind will become dissipated and just discursive thinking about these matters without having you know, actual direct observation It requires the building up of a certain force of concentration and mindfulness. So if concentration, it shouldn't be developed in the mode of what's called leading into what's called the absorptions or the jhanas, but just a certain certain capacity of sustained concentration. And during the, in order to build up that concentration in the early phases of practice, it's best to keep the noting at a fairly simple level to restrict the range of objects that one will try to note. For example, I would say in the early stage, when the mind is wandering, just one makes the note wandering mind, wandering, wandering, or thinking, thinking, then goes back to the primary object. Then after that force of concentration is built up to a certain degree, then from time to time, the hindrances will still arise then one can lay aside the primary object, and just try to see how the hindrance arises. Um, like Well, some, sometimes, some things, interesting things that one might discover is a certain distinction between A thought and a mental force which underlies a thought. And so one might see how from time to time a mental force gives rise to a sequence of thoughts which are governed by that mental force and sometimes how a thought will arouse a mental force. And then, if one investigates these hindrances as they arise, then one will see, in retrospect, one might inquire, how did this particular state arise? Say, somebody is becoming continually troubled by a state of anger or ill will which is arising. Then he might investigate and see what particular set of circumstances, something which has been undiscovered previously, but if he observes the way the mind is working, then he'll see that it's repeatedly going back to a particular thought, a particular object, which is just lingering on the threshold of awareness, and then see that it's through a very subtle and quick attending to that object or that thought that this hindrance is arising any any other questions? Do you believe it this this morning I said to myself, Okay, today I'll do the five hindrances and the five aggregates. Uh, <laughs> then next week I will do the, <laughs> the six internal and external bases. Then <laughs> maybe the seven factors of enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me? Is yeah. that what you've to your feelings about your success with the first four hindrances, or whether you are on the right path at all? Basically, it deals with the question of whether one is on the right path or not. I will explain doubt in greater length next week. Yeah. So <laughs> the bait that will bring you back next week, (laughs) unless you're traveling. But basically it's explained as doubts about the Buddha as the enlightened one, whether he's really the enlightened one, whether the Dhamma, the teaching is really the truth, whether there is really an Aryan Sangha, those who have reached enlightenment, the stages of enlightenment by practicing this Dhamma, and doubt about the training or the practice whether this practice really leads to some higher attainment. Excuse me? Sometimes there are really subtle doubts that don't come up into the mind until one starts doing contemplation. You might think very, you know, confidently that, of course, I've been born in a Buddhist country. I've I've been taking the three refuges since I could speak. But then after one really starts examining, or one starts to penetrate the subtle layers of the mind, then some doubts start coming up. Excuse me? That is also so. Yeah, yeah. If there are no quick results, then one might start doubting. You know, is this just, you know, yeah, or just um, hundred? How many generations? I don't know. Forty generations have been misled, and they're just deluding themselves, getting worked up through hyperventilation and. lack of sensory deprivation and they're getting into some special states of consciousness which they think are levels of samadhi and of realization you know subtle doubts like that start coming up maybe also doubts about oneself well one thinks well maybe others have done it but i can't do it or maybe teaching was effective in the past, but this is the age, the corrupt age, nothing to do but, you know, works of merit and hope to be reborn in the time of <laughs> the Buddha Maitreya. Or else doubts, maybe teaching got corrupted through the process of transmission. Um, All subtle subtle doubts can start coming up. (laughs) Okay, but anyway, we'll deal more with doubt and the other hindrances next week.